Okay, today I really want to look uh, for one last time at this year. This has been an amazing year. You know, I sit back and I think time passes so quickly. I mean, one day our kids are small and they're tiny like Raymond and they're just learning to walk and they're just getting into things. And then you flip around and they're 22 years old and they're graduating from college and they're ready to go off to graduate school. And your life just sort of disappears. You don't know where it all went. And you try and backtrack and look at the whole thing. Today I want to look at the life of a believer. The life of a believer. How is it that we grow and mature through the years? What are the events that shape who we are as people? Stop for just one minute. Do a mental checklist. What were the big, pivotal turning points in your life? Was it your marriage? Was that the first turning point that changed the direction of your life? Was it the birth of children? Was it becoming um, that first person in your family to go to school, to go to college, to, to be a college boy? What was the thing that pivoted and changed in your life that made everything different? Because we're going to look at the life of Paul today. And Paul has these events in his life that typify the Christian life. And the Christian life for us typifies how our entire life moves forward. There are four clear steps, four clear steps that we find in the book of Acts chapter 9. So we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 9 today. We're going to look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes known to us as Paul. And in looking at that, we're going to see these steps that create the path of our life. So like I said, make that mental checklist. What are the events that changed your life? What changed the direction of where you went, how you lived, what you thought, and what you did? For a lot of people, somewhere in high school, their life makes a jog. It turns one direction or the other. We look at kids who are born and raised in church, yet they leave the church and they become basically atheists or agnostics. And we go back and we talk to these kids and we say, what changed your life? What made you go from this person to this person? And they will always say the same thing. I had questions that nobody answered. We found that kids don't leave their faith in God in college. They don't even leave their faith in God in high school. They leave their faith in God in junior high. Because in junior high, they are confronted by the world. They are confronted by science. They are confronted by questions that they have no answers for. And then they turn to adults. They turn to pastors, teachers, leaders, and they don't have any answers. Today, I want us to look at those steps in our life. If we understand our own life, the question I ask is, how did we get here? How did we get from the person we were five years ago or 10 years ago to the person we are today? If we understand the things that change in our life, we'll be able to answer for our kids those questions. Now, I said that this is all about being thankful today. And we will see that we must be thankful to God for all of the things that happen in our life that change the direction of our life. The first thing I want you to see is this. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Each of us will experience a Damascus road. Each of us will experience a Damascus road. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, why does Saul of Tarsus refer to believers 
as members of the way. Remember what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. These people would repeat this again and again. Jesus is the way. Now, in our world today, nobody would bother with us if we said Jesus is a way. That there are many ways to God, many ways to happiness, many ways to joy. If we said that Jesus is one of many ways, nobody would get upset with us. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is exclusive. Jesus Christ does not allow anyone else to be Savior because there is no other way to salvation. We have many friends. We have many family members. And I've said this again and again, and I'm going to keep driving it home till God gets us out of this world. We have many family members who will tolerate Christianity, but they can never embrace it because they want to live their life their way. They have what I call the Frank Sinatra syndrome. The Frank Sinatra syndrome is, I did it my way. You know that song? That's how Frank thought about it. Yes, that's why I don't sing in church. Now you know the truth. Okay, Frank Sinatra's song is great. I did it my way. I took the blows. I took the brutality. I came on on top. I'm the champion. But here's the problem. In the real world, that doesn't work because there is only one way to the Father. So he says right there, he wants to persecute those who belong to the way, that he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Verse 3, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. You see, when someone persecutes the people of God, they are persecuting Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, if they hate me, they will hate you. But it's not you they hate, it's me they hate. They hate the fact that you belong to me, that you stand up for me, that you bow to me. People don't like it when we see someone subservient to another person. And none of us are subservient to other people. We are only subservient to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that makes people upset. If we have to bow to Christ, does that mean they have to bow to Christ? Yes. The Bible says one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, you're either going to bow to Jesus in this life or at the throne of judgment you will be forced to bow before him and confess the thing that you've not wanted to admit your whole life. See, a lot of people think, if I, just, if I die with all the toys, if I go out on top, then I win. No, you don't. Because the second you leave this life, you stand before the Lord of glory, and he will find out who you are, what you did, and he will look in the Lamb's book of life. If your name's not there, you don't make it. Isn't it wonderful that no matter what happens to you in life, car accidents, MRIs, food poisoning, Sick grandmothers, whatever happens to you, no school for another six months. Oh, yeah, terrible. Whatever happens to you, Jesus Christ is still Lord. He is still the Lord. He still has everything in his hands. You know, we, we get upset about elections. Elections mean nothing. We saw a few weeks ago. It says, the king's heart is but a river in the hand of God, and God shapes the river. 
God can bend any leader to his will to do what he has chosen to do. He did it so many times with the Persians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans. He bent them to his will. He said this, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to Damascus. He was unable to see for three days. He did not eat or drink. Paul was going to go, well, Saul at this point, was going to go to Damascus to arrest and imprison Christians. He had a goal for his life. He had a thing that he wanted to do. But guess what, people? On your way through life, you will have a Damascus Road moment. God will confront you where you are. Every person who lives and breathes and goes through this life has a moment when they confront Jesus Christ. It may be a fearful moment, it may be a joyful moment, it may be in a revival, it may be in a one-on-one discussion with someone in school or in the workplace. I've heard many Christians on the U of H campus witnessing and sharing Christ with others. Sometimes they are listened to, sometimes they are not. But they do what they do because they believe it is the truth. You see, the great thing is each of us had a Damascus Road moment. Now, I would like to believe that everybody here, when confronted with the divinity of Jesus Christ, said, Lord, I am a sinner, and I need to be saved from my sin. Hopefully, that has happened to you. If that has happened to you, it changed the direction of your life. Now, you can go through the motions. You can sit through a Sunday school class. You can even be baptized right here in the church, and it have no effect on you whatsoever. See, you can go through the motions because people expect it of you. I was originally baptized at 13 because that's what I thought people expected of me. Yes, I knew there was a God. Yes, I knew Jesus was the Son of God, but I did not have a personal relationship with him. And from 13 to 18, I was unsaved in the church. At 18, I went to a revival. And the evangelist, Dr. Albert Rose, I can still remember his name, He said, if you died today and you stood before the Lord of glory and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What is your answer? And I stood right there. The Holy Spirit grabbed my tongue, did not let me answer. And I had to realize that though I knew in my head that God was God, I had never brought him into my heart. I had never admitted my sin. I had never welcomed him into my life. And at 18, I was born again. Then I did the hardest thing ever. I had to get rebaptized in front of all the people who had seen me baptized the first time. My dad had been a deacon in the church. So they, they had expectations of me. But guess what? When you're unsaved and you get baptized, it does you no good. Unless your heart is converted, there's no help there. So the Damascus Road for me was that revival, giving my life to Christ and allowing myself to be rebaptized because the first one didn't mean anything and I knew it. That's the important thing. The Damascus Road moment is what changes you. It's not the first time you get it here. It's the first time you get it right here in the heart. The the, the very first time that the Holy Spirit drives it into your soul and you confess your sin and accept and are saved, are born again. So we all have a Damascus Road moment. Some people, their road moment is when they come into church, they hear the truth, and they leave out the back door and say, I'm never going in there again. I don't want to hear that stuff. 
I don't want to change my life. I don't want to submit to some God in the heavens. That's a Damascus Road moment that is terrible, terrifying. Notice, Paul confronts Jesus. He leaves blind. Why? He was always blind. Only now the blindness is physical, not just spiritual. It goes on. Acts 9.10, the second step. After you have your Damascus Road moment, you must have a baptism. Now, we won't say the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that's too controversial in the church today. But you need to be baptized. You're going to see what I mean. Acts 9.10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up and go to the street that is called Straight. The Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for the man of Tarsus named Saul. Since he is praying there, in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, placing his hands on him so that he can regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, now pay attention to this, this is a lot of us. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call upon your name. Ananias was afraid. And he had every right to be afraid. Stepping up for Jesus is a fearful thing. It's terrifying because not everybody is what they seem to be. But the Lord said to him, go. Just one word, go. For this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and to the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, now pay attention to this. This is a thing that everyone misses, but it's so important. And he said to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He then got up and was baptized. Saul was a Jew. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. He didn't need anything. He was the supreme example of what religious men looked like in Israel. But you see, he had been physically blinded so that he would see his true spiritual condition. When Ananias calls him Brother Paul, that signifies a relationship, not of siblings, but a relationship in faith. Paul had already accepted Christ as Savior. He had already accepted the Jesus who confronted him. That's very important because just because someone is not baptized does not mean they are not a believer. At the same time, once you accept, once Paul's eyes were opened, once the scales fell off and he could truly see again, he knew he had to be baptized. Why? Because in the Jewish faith, when a person was a Gentile and they came to the faith of Israel, they came to their faith in Yahweh, they had to be mikvah. They had to be baptized and born again. I told you they were pushed into the water. They came up as though they were being born a second time. And they would say, the rabbi would say, you were born a Gentile, but now you are born again a child of Israel, a child of Abraham, a child of faith. You see, that's what baptism represents. It represents our public statement that we are coming out of the shadows, that we are coming out of unbelief, that we are saying to the whole world, I believe in Jesus Christ. That's why baptism is so important. That's why Hunter's baptism was so important. It was his statement, I believe. I believe. He said it himself. I, I knew there was a God, 
But now I take him seriously. Now I take my salvation seriously. Now I want to live for him. Now here's the thing. After you get baptized, you don't magically get turned into some sort of super saint. You know, you don't, you don't get that super saiyan glow about you when, you when you come out. Okay? But what happens is you begin a journey. And it begins with a decision. Just like when you step up to an altar with the woman you love. And you say, I do. And you put that ring on her finger. And she puts that ring on your finger. That's the beginning of the journey. That's where it starts. But to do that from there on, you have to work on it. You got to give yourself to it. You got to be committed to it. And that's the important thing. To be baptized or be mikvahed in the Jewish faith, that was the beginning of your walk. Then it was about growing from there on out. And unlike physical growth, you know, you couldn't stop Raymond from growing if you tried. He's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and taller and stronger. And one day when his daddy's walking on a cane and has nothing but long gray hair, and little, little Raymond's going to come on, here, Dad, let me help you stand up. You know, that's going to happen. You can't stop physical growth. But spiritual growth is a choice. It's a decision. It's something we have to mean to have happen. Ananias was faithful even though he was afraid. When, it, when something is said in public, when something is said in your presence and you know that thing is false. Nicole's had many occasions in this class on Paul of Tarsus. She's had many occasions to be anguished and angry and frustrated by her professor. Oh, by the way, in case you didn't know, according to those at the University of Houston, Jesus was just an angel. His faithfulness to God made him like God. He really wasn't God. He was like God. And Nicole almost had a spasm. She almost had a stroke. She was so angry at this professor for saying such a ridiculous thing. And, you know, she could sit there silently and she could do nothing and she could let the class happen or she could say something in the comments and she chose to say something. She chose to respond to the teacher. And the teacher may not like her very much because she has agreed with nothing that he has said, but she said it because she believes it and she said it so well and so politely and so correctly that the teacher can't do anything about it. All he can do is go, okay, I understand, but one day you'll grow out of that. No, you don't grow out of faith. You grow deeper into your faith, but you've got to put in the effort to do it. You have to put in the time to make that happen. He says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that's where it began. It began with fear. But once Paul was changed, it says he got up and was baptized. He made that public statement to let every Christian know, hey, I am no longer the persecutor of the church. I am now the promoter of the church. I am one who will put Jesus Christ forward. So let's go on. Let's go on to Acts chapter 9, verse 19. So we have our Damascus Road experience. You can remember yours. I know you can. Your baptism. Maybe it was a physical baptism, like Hunter's was. But maybe you've not yet been, I've met people in their 80s who have not been baptized in their whole life because they just didn't think it was important. But once you sit down and explain it to them, they go, wow, that would be like uh, marrying my wife but not telling anybody, not wearing a wedding ring, not talking about her. Then you're married legally, but there's no celebration of that. And that's what baptism is, that celebration. The next thing I want you to see is we have a proclamation. We have good news to give to the nations. Acts 9.19. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. 
Think about that. A member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, walks into a Jewish synagogue. He opens the scriptures and says, this is about Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. Talk about endangering your own life. You walk into the enemy's den and start teaching Jesus. But that's where Saul started. Saul started where his heart was. His heart was in the synagogue with the Jewish people. His heart was, I was so blind that God had to knock the scales off my eyes. Now I want you to see just like I see and be excited just like I am excited. He says this, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. He is the son of Yahweh. But all who heard him were astonished and said, isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who are called by this name? And then he came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests. They couldn't believe that this man had changed. He was famous in Israel as the hound of heaven that chased down these, these, these wrongful sinners who called themselves Christians, and he was seeking to destroy them. Now he has done a 180-degree turn. He is now saying Jesus is the Son of God. I was wrong. I didn't understand. I didn't see. Do you know how much that must have hurt his pride, hurt his sense of self-importance? To say, I spent my whole life persecuting this church, and now I find out it's true. It's real. It must have been a very humbling thing for Paul to go through that. But he did it in the synagogues in front of those who knew who he had been and knew who he was now. Can you imagine if the friends you knew five or ten years ago could see you now? What would they think of you? Wow, I remember this person as... as you know, easygoing and laid back and just this and that. But now look at him. He's carrying a Bible and talking about Jesus and salvation and the coming judgment. What happened to you? What changed your life? That's the question you want. You want people to see a change because you want them to ask what changed your life so you can tell them it was Jesus. You, that's your perfect testimony right there. We have a story. If we have met Jesus and been changed, that change will be evident to everybody. But Paul grew, I'm sorry, but Saul grew more capable and more and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. Remember, he knew the Old Testament inside out. He was a student of Gamaliel. That means before he graduated from Gamaliel school, he had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. He had to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He had to have them memorized before he could be a graduate of Gamaliel School. Can you imagine trying to memorize the first five books of the Bible? And this is by the time you're 14 or 15. Wow, imagine the dedication it took to do that. And now he starts with the Old Testament, he starts with the Bible he knows so well, and proclaims, see, this is what God said was going to happen, boom, here's Jesus. He's the fulfillment of everything we see. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, no wonder. But their plot became known to Saul, so they were watching the gates day and night, intent on killing him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. So they went to the wall of the city, and they put him into a giant hamper, and they lowered him over the side so that he could escape without being killed. See, he risked his own life to proclaim Jesus in the place where he was. 
And those who sought to kill him were frustrated. Why? Because God will always make a way for you to go through whatever you're going through. Whatever difficulty you're facing, whatever opposition you face, God will make a way. But you've got to step up to the plate. If Saul remained quiet about his conversion, if Saul didn't say anything, if he just stopped persecuting the church, that wouldn't be enough. No, he stepped out right into the heart of Judaism and said, nope, the Messiah has already come. It's Jesus. He went after the very people who were intent on killing him. But he did it because he loved them. He wanted them to know the truth. And if we have friends who do not know Jesus and we want them to know the truth, we have to risk damaging that relationship to let them know the truth because Jesus will change us, give us boldness. Remember, Peter goes in and he says three times, nope, I don't know this Jesus guy. Nope, never heard of them. No, we never hung out. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter becomes this fireball, this amazing, dynamic, driven, motivated person who would never deny Jesus again. Instead, would step into the lion's den to proclaim him as Messiah. That's how God changes us. That's how God changes the life that he takes possession of. He changes us completely. The last thing I want you to see is the fourth thing. You've seen now that we have a Damascus road. Each of us experiences that. Each of us experiences a baptism, a coming out, a display of who we are. Also, we experience a proclamation. We, we discover our story that we can tell to the world, tell to the nations. Finally, we have our ministry. I've told you all before, every believer is a minister. My job happens to be preaching. That's why I like being called preacher or pastor. Either one's good. Because that's my particular ministry. Your ministry should be different than mine, unless there's a pastor being raised up in the church, in which case we're good to go. But whatever your ministry is, you've got to jump into it with both feet. Take a look at this. Acts 9.26. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to associate with the disciples. Hey, brothers, what's going on? Good to see you guys. But they were all afraid of him since they did not believe that he was a disciple. They thought it was a ploy. They thought it was a plot. They thought there's no way that this man, this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin could become a believer in Jesus. They just didn't believe it. Now, you may encounter people in your life who've come out of rough backgrounds. I mean, I've known, I've known one percenters. If you know what a one percenter is, you know how dangerous that is. Gang members and, and bike riders who are hardcore through and through, deadly dangerous right down to the bones. And I've seen them come to Christ, and they become pastors, they become ministers. There was a guy I knew, he turned his motorcycle shop into a church on Sundays. He said, if you come and listen to the message of Jesus Christ, I will help you fix your bikes. I will help you fix up your bikes, and we will get them running. And he would. They would come, and they would sit, and they would listen, and then they would work on their bikes the rest of the day. That was his ministry. But only he could do that. Only this guy was of such a nature, of such a character, that he could make that happen. Isn't that amazing? God's going to tailor your ministry to who you are, to what your talents and skills are. Because that's how he's going to use you. That's why he made you the way you are. So you could be useful in the work of the kingdom. So they said this. So they, they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and that how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Now we all know that Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. 
He becomes a friend of Paul. He becomes Paul's companion on the first missionary journey. And then because of a fight over Barnabas' nephew, Mark, the writer of the book of Mark, because of that, the ministry team is divided and they go in two different directions. But God used both teams of ministers to do amazing things. Barnabas goes off with Mark and they do ministry. Paul goes off with Silas, Timothy, and the others and they do ministry. And the ministry grows and expands. But Barnabas is the first one to see this change and brings him right to the apostles and tells them who he is and what he's done. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of our Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. That's the Jews that had embraced uh, logic and the wisdom of the Greek world. So they were kind of, um, they would have been considered contaminated Jews, but they were actually just Jews that prized the intellectual. And Paul was uniquely uh, built to minister to them. So he began to converse and debate with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him also. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and working and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and its numbers increased. Wow. Paul keeps facing these roadblocks. People keep trying to kill him. People keep trying to slow him down. People keep debating him or fearing him. And no matter what happens, he keeps going. Now, sometimes God shuts a door in your life to force you through a window. Sometimes you think, this is where my life is going to be. This is what I'm going to do. Nope, not going to happen. If God wants you in some particular place, he will shut enough doors to force you through the window to put you in that place. And that's the important thing. When things happen to you, when your life gets changed in direction, it's because God is steering you someplace. As they say, you should always bloom wherever you're planted. Wherever you happen to be at the moment, do your work, do your ministry, perform those acts that God has put in your life. And when God is ready to ship you on to some other place, he'll ship you on to some other place or shift your ministry to something else. Do you see these steps? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have had a Damascus Road experience. If you have had a Damascus Road experience, you have had a baptismal experience, a time of dedication, a time when you come out, you confess him, you are, you are honest about your faith, your belief, you're not hiding anymore, you don't have a secret faith. There are no secret Christians there are no secret Christians. Even in China, where they hunt them down and slaughter them, those Christians are only caught because they are vocal and that they tell people what they believe. That's how they get caught. They get caught by confessing their faith. But they are willing to die so that the word of Christ can run loose throughout China and all over the world. So you see, your baptism, your coming out, you're showing the world what you believe is so important. Then your proclamation, your testimony that you give to person after person after person, telling them who you are, how you got there, what your life was like before. Tell them about the medical experiences you've had. Tell them about the times God has saved you because that is all to give God glory, to show people that we Christians are not hollow, vapid, little wilting flowers that can't take stress. Christianity is born under pressure and it flourishes under pressure. Everywhere there's persecution in the world, the church is growing. Do you know where the church is not growing? 
in countries where it is tolerated and looked at and pitied. You go to England, where so many beautiful churches were, so many great pastors were. They have found churches from the 1800s. I've seen the pictures. Churches from the 1800s that are now fashion boutiques. Churches from the 1800s that are now discos, that are now uh, celestial healing farms, you know, whatever that is. These churches once stood for Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the way, they compromised, and when they did, they ceased to be a church, and they became something else. Our job as believers today is to go, you know what? I'm starting on this road. I've celebrated this road. I have a ministry to perform in this church, in my community, in my workplace, in my school. I have a job, and I need to do it. And when you accept that challenge, your life will change. People may not try to kill you, but they sure may give you dirty looks. But it's important that you stay the course. Because when you stand before the Lord, when that day comes and you leave this world for whatever reason, he's going to say, what'd you do about my son? Then he's going to crack open the book of life. There's your name. There's every deed you ever did. And there will be a reward for all that you've suffered. The disciples said to Jesus, Lord Jesus, we have left everything for you. We've, we've abandoned our work, our families, our, our homes. We've given everything up. And Jesus said, don't worry. On that day, everything that you have lost will be given to you again. And a hundredfold after that. The hundredfold promise is not for this life. It is for the next life. And you know what? As long as we live, we have a job to do. Amen? No matter how old, no matter how young, you've got a job. You need to get it done. Amen? And Paul kept this up until he found himself in a Roman prison, until they took him out, they put him in a square, they laid his head down and took his head off. That's when Paul retired. He retired when he was dead. Same thing happens to most of us, I hope. Let's pray.